0: everybody joy and lyle here and welcome to the sustainable jungle podcast where we talk to inspiring people working to future-proof our planet our guest today our first guest in fact is tim flack that's f-l-a-c-h you can find him on twitter at tim flack instagram tim flack photography or pop on over to his website timflack.com tim flack is a world-renowned photographer His work has been featured in a number of local and international publications, including National Geographic, the New York Times, the Smithsonian Magazine, and the Sunday Times. He's published five books, all focusing on a variety of animal species, the latest of which, called Endangered, showcases a selection of species that are on or near the brink of extinction. He's an honorary fellow of the Royal Photographic Society and was awarded an honorary doctorate from Norwich University of the Arts. He also has two Burmese cats and three goldfish. We were lucky enough to visit Tim in his London-based studio. We covered a range of topics, including his journey to becoming a self-sustaining photographer, why he defines himself as an animal photographer and not as a wildlife photographer, what his favorite and toughest animal subjects in his career have been, the role art plays in communicating the challenges of our generation and how we can reconnect people with nature. We hope you enjoy this captivating conversation with Tim Flack. Tim, thank you so much for having us here. We are so appreciative. We're very excited, Joy and I, particularly because we're animal lovers. You are a world-renowned photographer. Your work is increasingly focused on, on animals. You've published five books which look at a variety of animal species. You've highlighted some fascinating questions which we won't get into the, the detail right now, but can can we just start at the beginning, your backstory? Where were you born and where did you grow up?
1: Um, I I was uh, born in London, but spent my time um, growing up in Cornwall, the southwest of England, and and very much by the coast, and uh, in a sense of uh, very fascinated by the kind of the fishes and the species that I found. Going, going, rambling around the local
0: area, and um, that actually is, is an interesting point. You mentioned fishes. When did you start to become fascinated in animals?
1: Um, it's an interesting thought that I mean. Obviously, I don't do too many humans. Humans in my in my <laughs> yeah. in Human my animals. work, um, and I think it could be a combination of factors. That I'm I'm someone who who perhaps wasn't as extrovert, and thereby. I find that more reflective, contemplative kind of nature of looking and examining an animal that's sort of out there, a a sentient being that you don't quite, you question, you know, what what are they thinking, you know? What is there? What is the conscious space between myself as a human and, and, and that other?
0: Interesting. So you were already having those thoughts. When you were young and you were exposed to animals, I mean, when I think of my experience, I wasn't certainly asking what they were thinking, but that is very interesting. I guess I just want to zoom out for a second now. I understand that when you were about 18, you did a foundational course where you shot a f- roll of film at the London Zoo. If we can just go back to that time, do you remember that experience well?
1: Yes, I mean, my my... So sort the of journey visually was very much driven by drawing and painting and sitting in a field and just being there. And uh, one, of the, one of the kind of courses that art students do is that instead of just going straight to an art school and deciding so you, you, you do a kind of foundation course which sort of introduces you to lots of things. One of the subjects was having it been given a roll of film and a camera and marching off I mean, and, and, and our, our location was London Zoo and, uh, and, and I had to sort of fulfill a number of objectives about composition and of course my subject was animals, so it's quite a, sort of, it's like a full circle. Here Amazing. I am working on projects for my last book there and my very first role of film was also taken there.
2: Do you um, think, I mean you say it's come full circle, but do you think that that sparked something in you, that, that experience at the zoo when you were 18 years old?
1: I, I think it was just a continuation of the fact that I also recognised, maybe the only thing it gave me a glimpse into was that perhaps my, my way I worked visually, and in relation to animals, somehow worked. And that there was evidence, even in, or affirmation, that when I took that role of film there were certain images that did something interesting.
2: That you saw something that maybe other people yes, didn't and oth- necessarily see? Yes, and,
1: others, and, all, and yeah. others saw it as well to some degree. And, Thereby, maybe that encouraged me, who knows yeah I, I I think going back to that point about being a child and questioning the sort of the bigger questions about consciousness and animals, maybe I wouldn't have articulated like that as a as a six year old or whatever, <laughs> uh, but I suspect that there is that there is something looking into the eyes of another another sentient being
0: yeah sure. okay. and going back to that experience in the London Zoo when you were eighteen, do you remember any of the animals you shot were any standout photographs? I know it's going back some time. Yes, I, I, I,
1: one of the um, eras is the Elephant House, and obviously at those times, I don't think they were chained up as they were when Avedon, the photographer, photographed a famous picture with, with a model in France. And I think it's interesting, that subject, because my mother went to London Zoo when she was a child in what would have been the 1920s, or 30s, and then they had, um, they had elephant rides, and wow. now, of course, the elephants are no longer at London Zoo in Regent's Park, but are now located in what's one of the biggest zoos apparently in Europe now, at Whitsun Aid. Wow. So, so, so in a way, there has been great changes in response to being said. So everything's moving, the zoos are changing their role. So when you ask me about the elephants, I think about almost, you could say, the conservation history of how or our relationship to animals, and how that's also changing and morphing.
0: Yeah, it's interesting, it's a continuing developing mm. space. A mo-
1: more importantly, a moral question about what is appropriate. How should an animal be kept?
0: Yeah, uh, just more of a practical question. Uh, again, uh, you had this period, you said, of about 10 years between when you started taking photographs to the point at which you could choose your subjects and I was just wondering if you could share maybe a little bit about your experience in going from probably sort of a gun for hire photographer to yes. the point at which you were successful and self-sustaining.
1: I think this idea about what you know what is successful and what is sustainable is, is a difficult one to distinguish. Because um, it is true that now I have a little bit more of a buffer or a bit more sense of confidence so I can go off and spend, as I have just done, uh, two years of funding a project and to some degree turning down commercial interests in something that I fundamentally believe is, is a prominent debate about our connection with nature and how to encourage that through, in my case, photography. Um, and with respect to choice earlier on, there was I didn't have a trust fund and I didn't have, well, parents who were going to sort of bail me out and cover certain costs. So I had to sort of work in bars in the evening and. And then spend my time taking, you know, evolving my skills as a photographer during the day. So it was a very slow process. But I would say even today, I have to weigh up the, the, the commercial interest versus the the those things I really value and feel are worth the sacrifice, even if they're they're not financially rewarding. Mm-hmm. So I think that doesn't go away. I don't think you know whether you are acknowledged for what you do or you have. You're rewarded for what you do financially. You still, in a sense, never move away from the certain types of choices. So, Never-ending problem, isn't it? It's, it? Yes, I think yeah. it's difficult to suggest that you get to a point and then you're just free. I yeah. think even so, I would you know, enjoy participating with friends doing theatre posters and things I wasn't paid for from the very beginning, even when I had, you know, had to go back in the evening and work in a bar to, to pay the rent. In the
0: so it's almost like you're on that spectrum. Through life, and sometimes you're further along towards the point at which you can choose what you yeah. want to do, but there will always be some part of that spectrum. Yeah, and the
1: word choose is an important one. I mean, having options, but sometimes those options are also within our, our own confidence, our own belief. If we believe we have freedom, then some of you do, but there are practicalities, uh, particularly if you live in the city like London too, and you don't have someone paying your rent for you. There are, you know, Challenges like that that you'd have to manage and work with.
0: Yeah, absolutely and your career as a photographer I know that you have drawn a distinction between uh, And you call yourself an animal photographer as opposed to uh, a wildlife photographer Joy and I have sort of had a little bit of a talk about this as to how we understand what you mean But I wonder if you wouldn't mind it sitting a little bit further Yes, on.
1: I suppose it gets a bit more gray with the fact that I have gone apparently into the wild, to photograph some of the subjects in my last book.
2: Like the Sega? Yes, (laughs) and I
1: think that I do greatly, I have great, I say that as partly with respect to those who might spend six months hanging out in freezing climate in Mongolia, looking for the elusive snow leopard, and what I see myself as, that I'm more chasing a story and an image, and the of communication. That's not to say the wildlife photographer is not interested in, in, in the same um, aspects of that. But what I think is, is, is for me a priority is that I'm a person interested in how images operate on our imagination, how they might create behavioral change. So when I'm chasing an animal and I can photograph a polar bear in a zoo in St. Louis through a glass that looks like it's done in the wild, but you get the character, you get the personality coming across. That might do more for connecting the viewer than if i did get frozen risked my life went to the arctic so i'm sort of prioritizing narrative and storytelling over the adventurer who has has battled the elements has come back with this particular yeah. image and it's not to say that image won't be a great image but when i've had to go out and find my saiga in mongolia then i've gone and done that because they aren't kept in captivity but i could create in a couple of years a certain amount of content, which I think would be almost impossible if I prioritised the adventurer, yeah, the, the, yeah. the kind of, you know, you might almost say, I think it was Susan Sontag that spoke in the 70s in her book um, you know, uh, about photography, where she described that, you know, we used to shoot animals, and then now we photograph them. The idea to prove that you've been somewhere and the evidence. I see, right. And then, in fact, you could say, I think there is a degree of continuation of that, in a way. And the thing that I'm really fascinated in is how how do you actually get someone to be emotionally engaged with something? Because most evidence shows if you are, you feel it, you know, touches you on a subconscious level, emotional way, then you're much more likely to start valuing something start caring. Yeah. And the evidence of certain uh, studies, for example, Linda Kaloff in, in Massachusetts in America, have gone out and taken um, pictures of animals, often with no copy on black backgrounds, asked people before going to an exhibit and after the exhibit, and asked them about what the, the, how they care about the natural world. They've been profoundly changed in viewing those images. And, and, and recording post-exhibit their thoughts. There are many examples where they've looked at wildlife, traditional wildlife imagery or, con- or maybe climate change conferences where they've often been confused and muddled about the outcome. Mm-hmm. So the irony is that maybe the, the conservation movement has unwittingly created a world that separates humans and animals.
2: Exactly. Your images are are very relatable. You can see, you, they make them within the construct that we see ourselves today if that makes sense so we, we we might see a model in a magazine with that black background and that and then you see an animal one of your animals in that same way it's almost like we can connect to it in a much easier way than we could seeing something than yes. the average person who hasn't actually experienced this themselves see something you know, in the wild
1: yeah and i think that's really interesting because For example, George Sheila. I don't know if I quote this exactly, the best science is largely irrelevant without an emotional dimension. And so the scientists themselves, and many of the scientists I met, are recognizing the challenges of communicating conservation, how they've often been disappointed by images that were quite romanticized, that emphasize the mythical wild, that, that place that. And it seems logical that mythical wild should just get you, you know, that sense of loss, you know. The, mm-hmm. But actually, it it has to bring it into our world. So I think it's a time for us now to reflect on how is the best way to connect people to nature. Yeah. Mm-hmm. and I believe, pref- really, from the outcome of this project, having you could argue be one of those few who've been lucky enough, or whether it's lucky, it's quite sad sometimes mm. to witness the last northern white rhino oh, and look it in the absolutely eyes. absolutely tragic. But to be a witness of so many of these animals that have inevitably found themselves on the edge of extinction, and on this series of extinctions that are taking place, for the first time ever, it's not natural forces that have shaped that, you know, asteroids hitting the planet or whatever. Yeah. It, is, it is essentially shaped by, for the first time, not natural forces, but by us. So we are ultimately the only ones that can both, you know, destroy and also save.
2: Yeah. And we need to firstly attribute value to them first before we can even care about saving them.
0: That's, um, and I guess talking about um, the, the value in animals and how we view them, can I ask you broadly over your, your career, um, what are your most favourite? Moments that come to mind, uh, maybe particular animals or as an experience as a photographer in general just over your career?
1: No, that's a very interesting question because obviously the way you you tried to sum up, you know, was was it the most pleasing experience of the company you were keeping or the moment something revealed itself? But it's an interesting question because actually the picture that might be most successful in achieving what you want photography to do might not necessarily have be been a very a great experience. Mm. And the people that you might have shared if you, on some, you know, some end-of-the-day chat in the process of realizing the project might be a much more pleasing experience. And sitting with a load of flies in a, in a, <laughs> in a pit waiting for something to emerge and then going into the freezing conditions in the winter to follow this saiga, for example, yeah. it, it, there's a reward from getting a picture you know is important. And is that the highlight? Or is the highlight the difficult thoughts of looking into the northern white rhino's eye and say, why am I here photographing to document the last northern white rhino? How have we got to that? That's not exactly an uplifting experience, but it's, it's a very visceral one. Mm-hmm. It's a very, you're in the moment. You, you, so is being in the moment memorable? That, that's a good question. Or is it just when you're relaxing in a, you know, very, you know round, round people who have, you know, share, uh, or just, sorry, I'm not here, but just that excitement of being alive in the moment. Absolutely.
2: I'm super fascinated by the by your experience with the northern white rhino. What was that like?
1: Um, it, it was first the visiting the location, which was ultimately an animal that had been turned out for its retirement. So here was a, and it's interesting because there's a parallel with another story. So these were taken out of uh, Sudan. Uh, about 30 years previously by someone who foresaw that they were getting to a critical level. And in the meanwhile, through civil war, my understanding of it, uh, all the population of those North white rhinos was wiped out. So they only resided in this one zoo in Czechoslovakia. Mm. A number of those animals were sent to Santiago and then another one uh, that was still in Czechoslovakia died literally the year before and leaving this one rhino and its two female companions as the only remaining of the species, but they were not put back into Sudan because it wasn't stable enough. So ironically, they were in a stable part of Africa, but still not in their natural territory. So then you have an old man who can only see out of one eye. So when I was lying on the ground, I had to make sure that I didn't disturb him being on his blind side. Yeah. And I was there sort of literally, and they had an armed guard. Crazy, you know, God has to. then they had to put them almost like into a safe at night. Oh, this guy stop people still trying to take that last bit of horn off.
0: It's unbelievable.
1: And they, the horn had been cut back several times to make it of less uh, attraction to, to, to poachers. And now he's so old that they can't even do that without potentially him dying on an anesthetic mm. to do that procedure. So all those stories kind of go with you. And then it's still an, a caged area. It might be that it's a reasonable-sized field, but you still sense that thing that, you know, how we come to get this animal here. How do we, in a sense, consciously know that they are, their sort of, species are, you know, have, have dwindled in the way? It was evident that they were disappearing. And then there's the sort of fact that he's become this sort of celebrity. Celebrity because he's the last male northern white rhino. So that becomes a phenomena that you have to question. You know, that again, why are we in this situation?
2: Mm. Yeah. yeah. Was it? Did, did you? I mean, this is going to be sound a little odd, but um, you know, look, look him in the eye, which is something you've referred to before. I mean, was there something that did you did you get a sense of understanding or feeling with him?
1: I think this whole idea of consciousness is one that is a is a very difficult one because. Uh, ultimately, we do center everything from... I it's the, sorry, I was the <laughs> bleeping going on. Um, that it, it's an interesting idea about you know, what do we see when we look. And I started at the beginning talking about as a child. I looked in this something which I couldn't communicate. And you know, it's bad enough trying to communicate with another human and understand what they're thinking. Another, another sentient being, another something that's alive. It is clearly a divide. I am of the view that, that we must, it's dangerous to presume what something else, some, you know, some other animal is thinking. Mm. Um, we know that we, are, we all share a common kingship. And I mean that more not as blood, but in terms of origin. So clearly evolutionary biology has meant that we are essentially picking up indicators that we do recognize certain things. But I suspect there's a lot we don't. Right. And, and, and that we have to recognize that we have a propensity to project mm. uh, things that we understand in our sense. We can't help but be anthropocentric, to sense our world from who we are outwards. That, you could argue, is inevitable. And, you, and this is a, it's a status that you have to just live with. So when you ask me the question, what do I think it was thinking, or rather, what was I thinking? It was thinking. <laughs> <laughs> it's an interesting, layered <laughs> Yeah, is that I would, I would, more ask the question of my own projection, mm-hmm. and also the image that I produce, how that then operates on the viewer, and how they, in a sense, come into terms with what it means.
2: Mm. I mean, it's a, it's a really interesting area. I want to delve into the. Uh, the concept of anthropocentrism. We read on your website that you are um, you more drawn to anthropocentrism as opposed to anthropomorphism. If I'm getting those terms right, yeah, I had to was, Google so. them. <laughs> yes. And there was something that actually upset me recently. I I was um, on Twitter and I saw somebody made reference to a trophy hunter who had gone to Africa and felt that he he said something to the effect of. Uh, that, that he is a superior being and therefore it is his right as a superior being to to shoot multiple endangered species, Yes. Um, which upsets me a little bit and I don't want to get into trophy hunting because that's a whole nother rabbit hole. But you you had a great quote which was, um, we humans think we are unique but perhaps we are just human animals. Um, and I'd love to get a little bit more of your thoughts on why you're attracted to the idea of anthropocentrism. As, and how it sort of influences your work?
1: Gosh, um, yeah. I mean, it, it's. I, I can go into trophy hunting and all that as well, <laughs> if you like. <laughs>
0: uh, well, we, we, wherever you want to take it. <laughs> um,
1: I think that. So that. I don't know if I. I mean, you may have to reiterate a little bit of that, um, because my mind's going in several different directions yeah, no on worries. this. Yeah, no worries. Um, yeah, I think the core I, question I is think about anthropocentrism. Yes. Yeah, I, I mean only really that inevitably, you know, if we decide our, that we will have to project as human, we have to, in a sense, shape things according to be human. And we can't knock ourselves about for doing that. That is what we do. It's interesting that the word anthropomorphism was brought in. And that isn't, is something that also happens, but that we want to identify human elements within animals. Mm-hmm. But I think that that's what is more interesting, isn't so much the detail of how we try to make something the equivalent of us in an animal, but how we find commonality, how we find something that connects us. Mm-hmm. So what connects us may not necessarily be a visual representation of something about us but transported onto the face of another animal, but rather that there's something that brings them into our world. And so that's where, in a sense, I think this idea of kingship And that often is facilitated by connecting with the um, sense of the personality, the character, the vulnerability, all these elements play a really bigger part Mm -hmm. in making us identify
0: with something.
2: That's right. I I think one that I've been, which I've noticed is, is something that the general public can relate to a lot more is the idea around. Um, elephants and how they they live in very social and family environments and a lot yes. of people can relate to that sort of family structure and when a baby elephant gets into trouble the whole family comes running over and everybody's panicking to try and save the baby that those sorts of um, observations in nature seem to people yeah. seem to be able to connect well, to in some way
1: well i spoke about my mother taking being well then the offering elephant rides yes and how um, when I went as a child to London Zoo, they had tea parties for the chimps. Amazing. So what you have is these shifts in ethical values. Now when an animal is afforded an extension of our intelligence, we afford it more ethical consideration. So if an animal shows empathy, shows emotion, of course under theological structures or, or value systems, obviously the animal kingdom was created for our in- yeah. for our pleasure. We had dominion, didn't we? And we had dominion, and so this kind of creationist approach clearly has shaped a lot of um, people's values, and your trophy hunter might be just one of them. Mm-hmm. And, and, and I think that that is, is obviously something that we have to question about that relationship between being a custodian,
0: as opposed to... I yes.
1: suppose it's something that feels like you're going to sort things out when you you know, out there somewhere, yeah. up in the heavens or whatever. Yeah. Um, that, that if we're going to spoil we, you know we don't really, not many of us, unless you're a billionaire, have an option of flying to another planet <laughs> before we mess this one up.
2: Exactly right. Um, I think that's a, that's a nice segue into chatting a little bit more about Endangered and the series of beautiful photographs that you've taken. The series has, is now available in a book, if I understand correctly. And you've had a number of exhibitions uh, where you've shown the work. We'd love to understand a bit more about how this book came to be. What was it that sort of made you interested in pursuing this? And you've alluded to it already around, you know, this is something that you feel is super important. But Could you share a bit more about what made you inspired to to go out and and spend two years creating these images?
1: Um, I've done my previous projects involved... um, Sort of working with horses and the culture of how we shape animals, and of course, in a sense, we we've been shaping certainly dogs, for example, in in to such a degree. You know, all these different species and functionalities, and this idea that we, we shape, also we permit certain things to still exist in terms of of um, uh, certain reserves or managed, and you know, we have this sort of. Little pockets, sometimes of let's say the mythical world, wild, which is documented in, in, in often. But um, what drew me to the kind of this journey was that I also did a project um, where I went to the rainforest in in the Amazon and in Borneo, oh, wow. and I and I met the people who worked with the animals, and I was rather surprised that I always played this sort of how can I say perhaps a bit bit. Um, naive of me but I imagine that if you lived in a certain part of the world and you had a beautiful uh, forest which has been dis- gradually destroyed by palm oil or whatever deforestation that you would really care because it was your backyard yeah but of course really what you it. find is because of economic poverty in those countries that they are looking to the west and values and materialism they you know they want education and health and they want all the things that we appear to have, and that they know the black market value of almost every animal, Mm. even when they're often the ones that are supposed to be policing the management of it. Mm. So what is very evident is that where you think the custodianship of those parts of the planet, which are mostly economically deprived areas, I say deprived, but certainly less than $2 a day in Madagascar, probably most of Africa, where we have remnants of a certain ecological systems that haven't been totally destroyed agricultural practice had not totally mm. changed, then for those people, in a sense, to have the ability to, or, or uh, might say the choice even, because their family would come first, and their children, to actually protect their natural heritage, then you have to, in a sense, protect their livelihood. And to do that, you have to give them alternatives, or the influences in the world have to mobilize in such a manner that they can both have a livelihood and protect their natural heritage. So going back to the motivation against the, for the book was that these stories had come a, a light for me when I worked on Rainforest Project and I also worked on more than Human. So in a way, was being, it was an inevitable journey for me. It was an inevitable being exposed to some of the stories, it understand the realities of how people viewed their natural world around them and that many of the countries I visited were I was surprised to find that actually, you know, you go to Africa, say, to the Masamara, you don't see any black farmers there. It, it, it is very much Western coming in for ecotourism. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, and it is a small group of people. If they weren't there, then it would just be, uh, f- as it was in the 50s, it was for sheep. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and, and, and the reality, <laughs> or whatever, for livestock to create more meat so we can eat. And this is... So what... I'm saying about the book is that it was an inevitable journey.
0: Right.
1: It was one that, in a sense, it was a destiny. I couldn't do anything else because, as you know, what's going on, you you recognise that in fact you can't ignore it. Yeah. And that what really is the most important thing I believe that we need to do is to value nature by valuing it and thereby connecting people with it. Uh, they're going to be, in a sense, better placed to know how to be smart about resolving it. If we have, if we have value it, and we care, then we will, in a sense, find those. How can I say? Well, a better place to find the answers.
2: I think we can both relate to that sentiment. That that is exactly our view. We feel like, how can we, how can we convince people that there is value that needs to be attributed to these areas and these species? It's it's a critical element of success in this area. I think.
0: Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, getting people to care and bridge that gap between the, the yeah. us and the, the them scenario yeah, I, where
1: we're separate. So, for example, we were talking about millennials earlier. The average millennial in Europe spends seven and a half hours online. Mm. So if, they're, if they've got to get on with all the other realities of life, then it doesn't leave a lot of time to, be, in a sense, have that exposure to, to the natural world. And so, yes, we're probably more reliant on... on the virtual Im- well, the images and such material to in a sense connect us to the stories.
2: Exactly. Yeah. So speaking of stories, we'd love to understand a little bit more of your of your toughest subjects. I mean, we heard that you spent two, three days, was it? You know, sitting in the snow, watch, waiting for the saga to come out. Did you have? Do you have some other you know exciting, <laughs> toughest subjects to film that you could share with us?
1: I I, I don't know. I mean, I think they. You're kind of trying to come away with material that will act well as part of storytelling. Mm -hmm. So the greatest challenge we face is how do you take an image that isn't just an image that you say, well, that's a pretty image, but how does that help us engage with something, to feel something, to want to know about that story or that character or personality that you're looking at? And some of the most special experiences was perhaps when I went to uh, Gabon. uh, and visit, tried to find a gorilla that I'd met for one of my previous books, seven years earlier, called Jala. So Jala is a part of project uh, at Aspinall, who have done over many years, and it nearly uh, released these animals, um, lowland western gorillas, back near the uh, Congo, but within Gabon. So Jala had been rescued as, as, as an orphan. In, in the Congo and had effectively um, was rescued and brought over to England where uh, in Kent where he was part of a breeding program and a number of his offspring were reintroduced. But what they decided to do up to nearly 30 years in captivity uh, was to, in a sense, for him to live out his later years in the wild. Wow. Wow, how special. Yeah. That's amazing. And so for him to, then the debate is, he came with his son as well, is how would that animal be able to go back and be a, you know, a normal uh, animal yeah. living and eating the right grasses? So I was very privileged to spend time with a conservationist who had, essentially, you know we're talking about in the middle of a long way from anywhere, I think it was 100 miles from the next humans. And we, we were, there's no malaria because because no, no, you know, no parasite to be carried across. <laughs> we're, right to, we're, we're, we're miles from anywhere on an area that's not open to the public because it's been put aside for the gorillas. And we went up and down for days to find where this gorilla uh, was located. And what was really rewarding when we found the gorilla was the research scientist with me, who's so inspired and so committed, was counting what grasses was he eating, what foods were he eating, and he was so rewarded the fact that, that after having only been about a year back in the wild, that he was feeding and doing natural things, wow. and, and, and thereby it was also to experience, the, you might say, the second-hand research work and, and, and observational work, and then to photograph, be able to get confidence from a boat uh, for the animal not to be scared, and to be able to photograph him. Uh, in my book, drinking and and beautiful. just generally, rampant, you know, moving around the forest. It's that's beautiful.
2: I love the. I'm not sure if it, if it was him, but the well, the one shot of the the sort of zoom in on the chest was that was that him. That, that's right. Yeah. Yes. Ah, oh, that's a beautiful image. I really yeah. love that. It's a
1: so this particular image you mentioned just reminds us how. Anatomically, mm. we're not so far removed. Exactly, it's a bare chest, <laughs> yes. and it looks like someone's doing a bit of bodybuilding. Exactly,
0: that's what's <laughs> yeah, so amazing just, about it. Absolutely,
2: yeah, very cool. And um, actually, we Lal and I picked our favourite images yes. of the series on your website, and we were going to ask you about each of them. And of I picked the gorillas. So, okay. So you've jumped ahead on my on my one. So I'm going to pick another one, which is the um, the elephant, the close up on the elephant with the lashes.
1: Yes, I mean one of the things that. You think of the biggest land mammal, it, and it, we all know it has that big skin, you know, heavy skin and, and yet what I often want to do is portray something that 's much more delicate and this shot of, of the elephant with its sort of prominent eyelashes Beautiful long eyelashes yeah. <laughs> makes you i think is not what you 'd expect in fact it 's a very close up shot and just in the background is a blur of what is actually the ear, which I think you can just perhaps distinguish. But the idea is really about connection again, about recognizing there's a sensitivity there, Mm. and that the eye is something that we look to someone else's face and eyelashes. And it's that what I mean by, it's not really anthropomorphism, I don't think. It's the, the sense of just, again, bringing a subject like that closer into our world.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's something that I've always found and I've been in the wild and we've been very fortunate Lala and I to spend a lot of time in the wild um is is, is with elephants when they come super close up to the car mm. you can look into their eyes and it's a strange feeling to look into their eyes and feel like they're actually seeing you and you're seeing them and there's like a, that, that moment where you're mm. not quite sure like what level of understanding there is there or what level of connection there is there but you I, I don't know in my case maybe maybe it's wishful thinking or naivety but I feel like there's a connection there so when I saw that image, I just felt, I felt yes. connected to it. I think I it'd, be, I it.
1: It. it'd be a bit like saying, you know, it's the idea that there clearly is connection because there is, conscious, there is something going on that is outside our consciousness, but it's to what degree and what it represents, I think mm-hmm. is the challenge, and of course, what we project. And what is actually, I mean, we all know this, that people talk about auras and they talk about all this. Well, clearly there's a lot we don't know, a lot yes, of stuff we do not understand. so much we don't know. <laughs> and so that brings us to a more interesting debate that some might say, well, what's the value of saving a rhino? It's not too different from the southern white rhino. Mm. And, and, and so you're, you're left with these kind of questions that say, well, you know, we'll if as long as we have fresh water, we have this and, and meat to eat, why should we worry? The thing is that as a species, we've never not been with this family, this sense of kingship. We have an origin. That origin is who we are psychologically, physically, spiritually, emotionally, is made up from those hundreds, well, millions of years, if one can say, of being together. And then to separate that, we do not know. But even to the degree of losing some of the species, the consequences on on who we are.
0: But I just want to add to that. What you're saying is the the practical loss that we feel. We m- may not know the extent of that uh, right now. Losing a particular species like the rhino, but on the other hand, a sort of more uh, philosophical point of view, losing that rhino is. I feel it's. And this goes to your point about. The family it's losing a part of ourselves whether we realize it on a conscious level or not it's an incredibly tragic thing mm.
2: it's actually interesting i um i read an article about wolves being apex predators in a particular area of north america yes. and how when they took the wolves out the whole ecosystem fell over when they introduced them back in everything else came back which is kind of counterintuitive you would think that taking no. the wolves out would mean that you know everything else can thrive better, but actually putting them in meant that everything was put in balance, and you could argue that we are apex predators, arguably.
1: Yes, although there's the the, the checking system that seems to operate with us is different. Totally different. So what happens with the wolves <laughs> is that obviously if they they, they overhunt, then their numbers diminish, um, and also there are aspects of you know, if, for example, the deer that that are weak. Are taken out by by the wolves, then the bloodline gets stronger. Mm. They they operate differently. They move into the forest where humans won't get ticks because in you know, because there are various things that are to also for also human benefit. If we find that balance, the um, obviously a lot of animals are we project meaning uh, over. The actuality of what they represent. So most wolves aren't going to come charging and looking for a human to eat. Yeah. Um, And so unfortunately, our whole culture has imbued this the the certain personality on animals usually that we see as a a competitor often. Mm -hmm. But that the wolf, I think wolves like in Yellowstone Park, and I've witnessed them in Mongolia as well, have 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 obviously meant that the bloodline and stock is healthy because they have to be healthy. In a sense, to, yes, to maintain right. that system, yeah. and the animals themselves, you know, they can. There's a limit to how much you know. Say they can
0: overhunt. I might just go back to. Yeah, my you're, favorite, you're allowed my, to my, make my, your favorite. Yeah. My, my favorite animal in, endangered was the white-bellied pangolin.
2: Well, initially you chose the, the sega, but then we, know, then, yeah, knew we so you were going to be
0: talking about that. So. And I just <laughs> I just mention quickly the sega. The I think for me it's in the eyes. Understanding the fragility of their physical structure as well as the position that they're in right now. But the other one was the white bellied possum, and, and I think it, it's hanging off, either. presumably, it's, it's mother's, mother's tail. Yeah, That's actually, right. I actually right. see it over there yes. across the studio. Oh, okay, there it is. <laughs> I wonder if you could maybe just share a little bit of backstory. Well,
1: when you start on a project such as Endangered, you asked me how did I sort of started. I spent six months. Um, Literally faffing around as I usually do but that actually meant meeting up with people who headed the Millennium Bank for seeds or, or People freezing DNA of endangered animals to all the different individuals And what I was asking the scientists is what are the stories? What are the priorities? And they said well, it's ecosystems, but then how do you make ecosystems sexy? Mm-hmm. Well, actually you need an ambassador species or you need something where we connect their story and there were certain stories which were like must-have stories you, you know, the coral reefs, hugely important. They, they represent such a small area, ocean bed, I think 0.1 of a percent. But they support 25% of marine life. So the, so the point really being is I had to prioritize must-have stories. Mm-hmm. Right. There, was, there were lots of endangered animals, in Stanley, And I only had space for 160 images in my book. So clearly that wasn't going to represent all the animals. No. But what I needed to do was look at the ways in which we impact the natural world. We call, like the eco, we call them ecological drivers. The way that you know, human animal conflict, land use change, climate change, um, illegal wildlife trade, you know, all these different ways in which we're impacting. So I had a must-have list, and my must-have list was polar bears to use as, to articulate about the uh, melting of the ice caps, coral reefs, amphibians who are dying off at great rate from uh, a fungus and a, a number of other which is believed to be connected to climate change, and then the pangolin mm-hmm. and the saiga. the pangolin, because it 's one of the most traded is it 's a scaly anteater and it 's one of the most traded animals in the world and is suffering a collapse, same as vultures so that 's how I came to have right. that and i didn 't base it on just i i, ba- I base it on having the privilege of speaking to people who really know their stuff, who are the coalface of conservation, and ask them the questions, who are the candidates that should be in such a book? Yeah. Then weigh up what that means in terms of how the images would operate, accessibility, practical, practical things. And then you get a few guys like the Saiga and like the Pangolin who were pretty uh, pragmatic to realize but could not afford not to have them in mm. the book.
2: So where was the pangolin shot?
1: Well actually it was a, a, a um, it was in California and it was part of a um, breeding program and I had you know talked to Tarpe Zoo, I talked to Lady mm-hmm. in Africa, I basically contacted pretty much everyone working in that area and and it was I was really struggling with having the accessibility to get the kind of images I need to make engaging emotional portraits. Mm. I need us to connect with the subject and the picture that you, you you spoke of, I think that maybe its strength is one that i didn't mention. I talked about character, personality um, uh, but I didn't mention vulnerability, and vulnerability is another powerful connector, and when you have a small pangling hanging onto a mother's tail, mm. that is you know we connect with that idea.
0: Absolutely. Also, um, go into a little bit of the detail, the pangolin, a scaly armored animal, yet so precious and so fragile and so much at the behest of whatever humanity. Well,
1: yes, I mean, this scaly anteater, and there are different scales. So once I was working with a tree pangolin, which is sort of about that sort of size. Um, they go into a ball and that ball is very effective for right. most protection. It affords it protection. In fact, there are instances of, of big cats actually dying because they got caught up and it, trying to pull back in. Exactly. So no, almost nothing can break it. But unfortunately, there's an irony that because they're nocturnal, so hardly anyone sees them, and in fact, they're usually caught in traps and what happens is they just they pick them up, ironically, and just transport them in the ball. So what what evolutionally doesn't seem to work against humans. Mm, like yeah. so many things. Yeah.
2: One question that I have for you about sort of the key messages that you want to send with your images. So for me, looking through your images makes me super emotional because I have grown up with a lot of these creatures and have been lucky enough to see them many, many times in the wild. And to think of not having a world without them is actually quite traumatic for me. But I imagine that a lot of people haven't been fortunate enough to see mm-hmm. that. So what for you do you think are the, the main messages you'd like these images to convey to admirers of your work?
1: Well, um, yes, I mean the, I think that the driving or the underlying sort of drive with my work is to in a sense one question, what is the most powerful way to connect people with nature? But then you could say as I said in the book, there's a quote in the book, it says, it's never been more important to connect people with nature. Yes, Our future depends on it. It's and that sort away. of I- idea that really, first we need to connect and we need to value. And my, my objective in the book was to bring the stories. But there's no point if I've lost the viewer before they even engage with the content. If it's some monkey in the tree over there. But if it's something with great big red lips looking at us, we can't yes. but help look at, back at it and thereby entertain what is that animal, and what is its circumstances. And if we have a funny antelope with a funny proboscis nose with horns looking at us with cute doe eyes, (laughs) what does that mean? What is that model? If it's something that is away and removed from our experiences, it's very difficult. I can give an example of a human picture of a human, a very sad picture, down the Mediterranean coastline when the Syrian, I think it was a three year old child, dead child was picked up by a rescue worker. And all you see is two small feet, sorry, uh, shoes. And you see it, and this, is, this picture shows the Velcro shoes. Mm-hmm. So every parent can imagine doing their, 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 their um, young child's shoes up. And this picture, after many months of the Syrian, uh, both people dying in, in large numbers, uh, that was to transform, like, um, Merkel and others opened up the numbers. It changed everything, because for, for that moment, that picture entered people into the certain realities and into their world. Mm. Yeah. So this is what hap- has, has to happen with wildlife photography. Other great pictures, like Nick Yut's Napan girl running, a young girl running, screaming from the Napan bombing. the transform have a huge effect on the outcome of the war in terms of the the, how the populace held that war in America Mm. and around the world so pictures that connect us to our realities are what I believe we have to explore we have to examine what are the very best ways to to most powerfully do that to tell the best stories of the best science so we can be smart in the way we approach the future And that I hope that I have started a thought process on some of those mechanisms or questioning those mechanisms. And that I've also told the story of some of these animals, which for some are the iconic and some the lesser known.
2: Mm, Absolutely. There's a huge, huge role for for artists like yourself and for Mm. creatives to, to play in this whole story.
1: And I think you remind me of another key point is that the arts and the sciences have unfortunately to a large degree being very separated. And I would probably, and I'd probably be dumb for the saying this on camera, but I do think that certain aspects of the art education system has a lot of emphasis on postmodernist concepts of identity and personality, self-expression, and that we can't afford that luxury in the art well. world. If the art world deals with the subconscious and the emotional, the free learning dimension of information, the way we find and then have ownership, then it's never been more important for us to question those tools and to use them to articulate the best science.
0: Actually, that's a question I was going to get to later. Is, is basically what is the role of art in communicating the, the grave concerns that uh, our generation yeah. faces? Um, mm-hmm. But I think yes. But one of it. the questions mm-hmm.
1: I, I actually must point out, and this is where it really gets interesting, is having spoken recently to some neuroscientists, they were expressing how often most of the most important decisions we make, we make them emotionally before we think. And so errors like cuteness, which are there to allow us to protect our progeny, to grab them like we move a hand from a flame, is a process that happens before we realize what has happened consciously. So to understand those elements that we are reacting emotionally, and we know so many events like Brexit, are they really physical, really? Reactions? No, they're not. There, are a lot of other stuff, and it's mostly emotional mm-hmm. and not rational. And, uh, and this happens at a and, level And that this weird. happens, and so so to understand at the level of cuteness and how those elements work on us, they're like m- neural highways. Boom! They're straight there before you've even started thinking. Yeah. In a in a in a conscious level, to understand how those work is the opportunity to take not just those who already believe that we need to resolve and care you could say the altruists, what we need to do is touch the hearts and minds of the egotists as well. Mm -hmm. The egotists who will find themselves connecting with the story before they realize what they were initially uh, dealing with, and thereby hopefully care more.
0: That is um, such a a good point, a a very interesting point. So essentially what you're saying is we can throw facts, we can throw figures, we can throw percentages at people, all the numbers, but until we connect with them
1: through th- do you give up drinking emotion? when you know it is going to lead to liver yeah. cancer? Do you eat less sugar drinks when you know it's going to give yeah, you diabetes? Yeah. No, you don't, unless oh, something oh. happens. We don't work like that. And Absolutely. that's part of the challenge of understanding our condition. We are actually, those factors are, because we had to, as we know, load up on fruits when we found them. So there, so our evolution wiring is playing out and, and acting more powerfully sometimes than our conscious reasoning.
0: That's fascinating, it's really fascinating, and it makes a lot of sense. And I just want to ask you, Tim, so you've obviously been at the coalface, a lot of these conservation and, and sustainability concerns that are facing our generation. What, in your opinion, are maybe one or two of the biggest you think that we need to try and solve?
2: And It doesn't necessarily we need to be conservation-related. Yes,
1: I, I, I think that we, we certainly… Yeah, I mean, well, yes, we talk about conservation. I think we we keep going back to similar things. I mean, ecosystems are, I think, hugely important for humanity to have a sense of, of, I can say, to protect humanity's future well-being, and that. I also, sorry, I know you asked, it's not conservation. I think we have to redefine our cultural relationship to nature. Mm-hmm. Now this touches on what you mentioned. So if it's life economics, corporations understanding that they're, both their employees, but their future won't be there unless they also move and adapt to different ways of approaching. We've never had to question our, our, our capitalistic system, many things in quite the same way, where we know that we have to actually do it in, in, in empathy or in, 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 you might say, in conjunction with understanding that we have a world where we are changing it mm-hmm. in a way we've never done before and so that's where i mean we have to reculturally define our relationship because there will be no relationship because we won't be here to to, to even have that option exactly if we go Nothing forward that the of the day. so really when you know it's the end game <laughs> i think we have to do we have to go through processes that we haven't had to but what we need to do is create the will for that change
2: mm-hmm
0: absolutely it's a tough position to be in at the moment to be faced with these sorts of challenges right at the the end of the game on the eleventh hour and talking about you know art as a as a solution and a bridge to connect to create that that care uh, and that interest and to bridge the divide between an us and a them are there any other sort of movements or artists that uh, have Inspired you in the work that you've done
1: Wow, that's a difficult one. I mean, I think, that, I think it's on different levels. I mean, there are people who command a medium That, that become the giants of their, of their time and it may sound cliche to say Picasso, Rembrandt, all this, but they They've shown the power of understanding how to use visual form and so clearly they inspire and then you see that the works of many people who have in a sense committed, like Jane Goodwill, to, to developing ways to inspire young people to become ambassadors of the natural world. And that, the, that these people are, and, you know, even the way Attenborough has got into people's living room, mm-hmm. and he himself has evolved his approach to be, in a sense, reflective of the changing time, to question, you know, plastics in the ocean. But this is also change for all of us. You know, it's not that you know we're all having to change with a changing time. I'm sure that we wouldn't be having these kind of discussions 20 years ago. They'd be slightly different. I'm not saying there aren't people who've been saying that we've got to protect the natural world a hundred years ago, but that there is a, a, a shift, and we're part of a changing shift. That is a response to what is evidently um, something that, in a way, we, we I can that. that there is this seismic shift there is a you know when i was born in 1958 the population i think was just under just trying to remember if it was under two million just under tipping under two two billion sorry under two billion and mm, now we're scary. nearly seven and a half so the dynamics of the great acceleration uh, the concepts of the fact that we are in a sense shaping the planet In the way that is described by some as the Anthropocene, an epoch that is like defined geologically but by us, but also more importantly, everything else comes into question. Mm -hmm. Who we are, history, everything comes into question. Profoundly change, it changes our whole framework. That's why something that's a geological debate, that is the Anthropocene over the Holocene or whatever (laughs) before, it becomes an important debate philosophically and in every way, because it brings in the question of our own existence.
0: Very cool. Yeah, sorry, you had a couple of questions, I think. Yeah,
2: yeah, So I'm just conscious, we're we're just about out of time, we've got a few more minutes. Um, I'm gonna ask a very selfish question, which is relating to photography. I am a a complete wannabe wildlife photographer, but not very Mm. good. Uh, and I read that you that you talk about your uh, approach to photography as as one where you you think through your structure initially. and then, when you're there and you're in the moment, you just allow yourself to be present and open yourself up to the opportunities that may present itself or what the animal might do to yeah. give you that opportunity. And I'd love to ask you whether you have any tips or tricks for actually yes, no, being present a, in the it, moment. Yes,
1: it's a very interesting debate, And it's one that goes back to whole debates around creativity. And mm. you often have this, you know, can you reason something? <laughs> and can you, can you in a sense, uh, in a sense, be present and present there by experience? So so it's, it's an... I think this is a bit of a conundrum, and this is exactly, and I think it's a really interesting idea. So Picasso, who was always quite good at articulating uh, about creativity, uh, he said that, um, I don't seek, I find. And what I mean, I think he meant by that, but I can only ascertain in his own practice, is that, that what reveals itself to you is always going to be and, and excites you and touches you, is probably always going to be more exciting for another person than what you had reasoned that you perhaps thought you were going to, to, to find. And that the challenge is, is to separate both the framework you need to be there. If you don't go fishing, you don't catch anything, idea. You need the framework and you need to be in a situation to afford the possibility. Mm-hmm. But that to be able as something that reveals itself as even different and more interesting, that you let it be. And you, so you, you, you recognize it. And that then afterwards, you leave yourself in the post kind of rationalization <laughs> to accept that it might be working on some individuals different to what you thought. And to understand and be intrigued by how people make meaning out of something. Mm-hmm. So it's like the pre-visualization, the actualization, and the post-rationalization. Perfect. They As all a play a part okay. in art forms. And to pretend one's locked down, to presume is a very dangerous thing.
2: I think that's where I'm going wrong. Try to control everything.
1: <laughs>
2: <laughs> um, I think we we probably have exactly one minute left, so I think it'd be great to wrap up and just um, tell our audience where they can find you, how they can buy your book, where they can find it online.
1: Oh wow! Um, yes, I mean I suppose the book is through Amazon's probably the easiest. So you, well, I should be promoting the local bookshop. Yes, um, <laughs> I think that I think what I would really um, really want to to share is just that. We are to a unique time. We have the power to make things work for the better. And, and that we must, in a sense, realize the value of what we've got out there. Mm-hmm. And, and really, I, that's all I would say, Just just you know, how important it is for us to feel and be present with nature.
0: Absolutely. And Tim, just just before we go, is there a next project? What can we look forward to?
1: Well, I've got. I mean, photographically, I, I'm going to start looking at birds, but very kind of illustrative birds, but to celebrate the beautiful and the structure of of, of the of um, yes of these. Like, I haven't got there yet, but I hope they're going to be you know engaging. And of course, it's always a journey for anyone. You get, you start a journey, and then you might go slightly. A different slightly different way yeah. and on another note I would like to give more form to some of the, the concepts I've, I've kind of discussed in this conversation here mm. um, or this interview uh, that the relationship between neuroscience sociology how working together with others I might be able to give some tools for, for other practitioners like myself to have, a, have some sense of what they might come back with and how that might work differently on the viewers. So actually to do research into actual uh, uh, areas of how
0: pictures work. That's really cool. And that's um, solving or, or bridging that divide and I know we keep on talking about that is really how we're going to change things and and um, save this uh, race against time that we're faced up against.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that, that, that also me we all do our different thing and I happen to take pictures. so. That's how I'm, I'm driving it in my own way. But I also very, feel very privileged to be able to have the means to connect people with the subject. It's, I feel very honoured that we connect with it and obviously I want to try and develop it.
2: For sure. just For the listeners out there, we're going to put up links to all of your work on our show notes so that it can be easily connected to and they can find you, um, yes. including all of your social profiles and everything as well. And hopefully 2018 will we'll have some more exciting work that we can, we can share with our, our audience as well.
1: Well, yes, I wish you guys you know, the very best going forward. I know you're you know, at a point in your career where you're starting another journey. And it sounds like one that we share common ground on most definitely we
2: share a lot of common
0: ground yeah yeah thanks tim really all the best for 2018 and thoroughly look forward to your your next project
1: thank you for coming here
2: thank you so much for having us in this beautiful studio it's been wonderful so there you have our first ever interview with the super inspiring tim flack we hope you enjoyed this interview as much as we did you will be able to find the show notes for this interview at sustainablejungle.com forward slash podcast Remember to check out Tim's work at timflack.com. And if you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and leave us a review. See you next time.